Hello. This is the Making Europe podcast to accompany the Making Europe book series. So, who did make Europe? This podcast may change your outlook on modern European history and how the European Union came to be. Each podcast in this series gives a new story that provides clues as to why the EU is potentially being unmade, giving insights to the challenges and debates facing the continent. Your interviewer is Geraldine Bloomfield. She will be interviewing the authors of the six editions to discover the alternative stories from the history of technology that shaped and influenced the Europe we know today. Hello. Today in our Making Europe podcast series, we have the authors of the first book in the series, Consumers, Tinkerers and Rebels. Welcome to Mikhail Hard, Professor of History of Technology from Darmstadt University in Germany and Professor Ruth Oldenziel, who is a professor in American and European history at Eidhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Before we hear from our authors, we're going to dive into the story. Crossing Europe's borders by train. Three corridors. It was five o'clock in the morning on December 7, 1816. A train had just pulled into the Gare de l'Est in Paris. The French Chief Justice, Poinceau, was found lying in a pool of blood. The victim's brain splattered across his first-class compartment. News of the brutal murder spread almost instantaneously throughout Europe. Four years later, another first-class train traveler, Thomas Briggs, a British chief banking clerk, met a similar fate. How could they have been murdered without anyone hearing cries or gunshots? In the press, the train, particularly the secluded first-class train compartment, entered the public's imagination as an ideal crime scene. Fear reverberated through higher classes around the safety of this new technology. The train. The brutal murders prompted calls for a change in train design to allow the alarm to be raised. Everything from voice tubes to ropes with bell signals, mirrors and peepholes were put forward as safety solutions. In the end, Europe's long-distance trains adopted many features from America. Responding to high-paying customers, train companies developed new strategies to serve and keep the classes apart with first, second, third and fourth-class travel experiences. Comfort, service and interiors in carriages, waiting rooms, public bathrooms, ticket offices, restaurants and general train station facilities all reflected the strict segregation of the new travelling public. Engineers like Chevalier and idealists like St. Simon supported railroads along with other recent innovations like telegraph lines as being capable of breaking down barriers between individuals and cultures to promote and secure peace across Europe. The German economist Friedrich List, 
even suggested that the expansion of the railroad would make future wars obsolete. Train passengers viewed the railroad very differently to St. Simon or List. While the train offered new freedom of mobility to the upper classes, emigrants on the lower rungs of the social ladder encountered an entirely different Europe from that of the haute bourgeoisie in their first-class cabins. Travelling across Europe in separate, designated corridors, the migrant fourth classes rarely met their first-class counterparts. At borders, they were treated completely different. The new exciting world of tourism for the aristocracy had a dark opposite. The European migrant tourist had their own travelling nightmare experienced by the stream of young men and women lured to the US and other places in search of better lives. One of these desperate young women was Russian-Jewish teenaged girl Mashka Entin, who in 1894, with her mother and sister, managed to flee from their hometown of Polotsk to the western border of Poland's Russian section to the port of Hamburg, en route to America to join Mashki's father. The first hurdle was the German-Russian border in the town of Eitkunen. Here, the German guards forced them off the train and confiscated their passports. Only with the help of a Jewish relief organization and a bribe could they get back on a cramped fourth-class immigrant train. But first their luggage had to be steamed and smoked at the railway depot, at their own cost. The migrant class needed to be sanitized. They were then rerouted to a deserted area just outside Berlin. The station had been built in 1891 as Germany's central hub to remove migrants from Berlin's busy railway stations. Ruhleben railway station was part of a system that ensured migrants were channeled through the country without defecting or encountering regular train passengers. At any one of these hubs, families could be broken up. Family members could be deemed unfit and turned back during the process. The terrified migrants were forced to undress and undergo disinfection in a shower installation before they could board another, even more crowded, fourth-class train to Hamburg. The Enten family was involuntarily quarantined for two weeks in an area with high walls and barbed wire where they were forced to take baths and to be vaccinated. Again, all paid for by themselves. Upon arrival at New York's Ellis Island, the immigrants had to endure yet another medical, financial and social screening. Not only migrants found themselves harassed by authorities and railroad company employees. For much of the 19th century, most ordinary international train users encountered private railway companies, countless national rules and restrictions, and an utter lack of international consumer protection. Bunsen, a legal scholar and traveler's rights at the time, remarked, potatoes were protected better than passengers, even when shipped over the same railway line and often physically sharing the same rail car. 
Authorities took no responsibility for delays and lost connections that arose from border inspections. To stop this abysmal situation, passengers formed consumer organizations. They founded one of the world's first user movements, almost a century before the organized consumer movement of the 1970s. Heart-stricken passengers convinced insurance companies to step in to protect international transportation of personal luggage. Private tour operators and travel agencies like Thomas Cook and Son acted as mediators between individual travelers and train companies to create separate train travel and tourism experience for the aristocratic and middle-class Europe. While shipping and later airline industries recognized their collective responsibility, it would take the railroads until 1980 to guarantee passengers full compensation for loss of life and luggage when traveling internationally. So, Mikael, what inspired you personally to write Consumers, Tinkers and Rebels? Well, I guess the main reason, being an academic, is that I and Ruth have been working in the field of history of technology for a couple of decades and being increasingly disappointed with the way that ordinary people are excluded from the stories that our colleagues usually tell. What we in our book call users, or in the title, consumers, tinkerers and rebels. These people usually never appear in works on, usually on traditional works on railroads, on airplanes, on atom bombs. So we wanted to write a history about these people who are not absent, who are absent, excuse me, in these works. Mm. And Ruth, for you, what inspired, what captured your imagination? Well, truth be told, um, I, I, I started my life and, and as an academic being scared of technology. And uh, I, I always think that yeah, you have to start from your demons. So the dark side. Yeah, the dark side. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people uh, f- feel intimidated by technology. So it, it, that's fascinating to me. And for you, what is technology? How do you define technology? Yeah, um, I think that's actually a key question for the whole series and our book in particular. I, I, most people uh, think uh, of technology as something uh, imposing and big, like um, the A-bomb or a steam engine locomotive or, um, or cars. But if you think of it, um, uh, for example, a car... It's just a thing and could not exist without the knowledge of people operating that thing. Um, so that includes uh, driving license, uh, knowledge of the road, being able to read the signs of a road. But the road itself is also part of it. So we tend to talk about technology as really a system that involves the things, the people, and the knowledge about the things and the people. Uh, and if you once you've said that, then it becomes very clear that uh, people's uh, interaction with the technology is is part of the technology. To bring out some of the experiences of the people in the book, 
um, and the story, the particularly terrible consumer experience of the, the judge and the banking clerk on the train, their journeys at that time in history. Um, can you, you talk to us about that and also how their, their user experience changed how the technology was implemented? I think trains were, at the time, a new technology, uh, like um, computers and the internet today. And uh, people didn't know how to to use a train. It was basically to uh, transport goods. So the idea that you could transport people was new. Um, and so the first inclination was to have wagons uh, like uh, uh, transporting goods uh, to have people in it. And Europe at the time was a class-based society. So first-class uh, travelers wanted uh, to be secluded and not mingle with other people. The great unwashed. Yeah. And, and uh, so in the 1860s, we're still in the process of making uh, the trains that is there today. And there were these two terrible murders in Paris and London, uh, first-class passengers. And the press was in a frenzy, and it was, uh, it was the big news because uh, first-class passengers felt um, isolated, being murdered in this isolated compartment. And uh, uh, so there were calls of how can we change the experience and the travel to make it more safe. And so there were proposals you know, with mirrors and peepholes and bells and all kinds of uh, things. And eventually it became the train that we know today. That is to say that a conductor can walk from one compartment to the next. But the promise was also at the time, like the internet in, in, uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that it would be accessible to all, that uh, everybody could access it and also that it would bring a better society. So... Mikhail, can you tell us about the experience of the European migrant, the Eastern European migrant that would have travelled um, through Europe on their way to America, for example? Can you tell us the kind of experience they might have had? Well, I mean, first of all, I might want to point out that I think the, their experiences from back then are probably not dissimilar to the experience that immigrants who try to come to Europe today have. Remember in these days, Europe boasted itself for being open, liberal, but still, you know, millions of Europeans wanted and tried to leave the continent, primarily to go to the Americas. And when the railroads came, the first kind of travel agencies actually emerged. You could, if you had the money, and if you were allowed by your landlord, you could decide to go to the United States where most of them went or tried to go. And with a ticket in hand, you, if you were lucky, you could ma make your way, for example, from the Ukraine or from Russia through Europe, through Central Europe, till Hamburg to Bremen to Rotterdam and enter a ship to the United States. But that, I mean, on paper, this looks like a very easy trip. You have paid your money to the travel agent. But at every corner, at every border, 
the Russian-Ukraine border, the Polish-German border. You would have people checking your papers. Maybe you'd have to bribe somebody. Once you were then come to the railroad station in, in uh, Berlin where you have to change trains, you might have to wait for several days to get on the new train. In the, in the meantime, you have to be de-loused. Yeah, um, sanitized. Yeah, yeah, sanitized. I mean, I mean, we won't talk about gas chambers, but I mean, the yeah. technology is very similar. And Shadows. then, not everyone, but finally, they could enter the boat in one of these harbor ports. But even then, you were not, I mean, just like the boat emigrants who come today across the Mediterranean, even if they made it to Alice Island in New York, they, you weren't sure that you would be led into the country. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, what I've learned from the book, I was astounded you know, in, in uh, researching this to find that the very infrastructure of these cleansing stations, delousing, uh, desanitation stations and infrastructure is a, is a, a technology um, was built in, from the 1870s and 80s because the United States wanted to make sure that the immigrants that they got from Europe were cleansed. Uh, and uh, Very was powerful a, words in itself. Yes. Cleansing. Uh, and, and it was a worldwide system uh, that locked in trains and ocean liners and the whole immigration system, bureaucratic system. Now, then in the 20th century, that same infrastructure is not used to uh, make the smooth transition, smooth quote-unquote, uh, of immigrants to the United States, uh, but in reverse then is used in the Holocaust to kill. Because Auschwitz was started as a cleansing station for the immigration system. And we see that actually a lot of these stations uh, were used away, that way. And the train wagons were at the time used to transport goods, then transport immigrants uh, from uh, east to west. And then you see from west to east in the Holocaust that there, these same infrastructures are used to uh, kill an entire uh, people population. So what does that tell you? Well, as I said, you know, it, it tells you that um, you always need people to give meaning or uh, uh, that technologies are never neutral. Um, and uh, they can be used for good, but they can use also for, for bad, for the bad. So how do you see technologies now being shaped by the consumers, the rebels, the tinkerers, um, as you talked about earlier, the internet, social media, other forms of communication, transportation that we might have now. What stories have you heard in recent times that give you, that inspire you or give you hope about, about the people being able to change things for, for good? Now, when we talk about computers, we talk about users. I mean, but when we talk about protection, we often talk about consumers. And there is actually this concept of consumer movement. I mean, movement of concerned 
individuals who formed groups in the 1970s and 80s to protect the interests of consumers. But in our book, we, one thing we really want to highlight is that this did not start in the 1970s. I mean, so what we call user movements, you find already in the 1860s, one of the first bicycles appeared. People, in this case, middle class, members of the middle class, women and men, got together and formed organizations to protect their interests, to make sure that that the that the bicycle would be a technology that they could use for their own interests. So um, we like very much to flag this concept of user movements, because uh, not because it's theoretically interesting, but I think it helps us see the, the past in a new light. Yeah, maybe to uh, to add to that, the word consumer, uh, I think, conjures up this idea that you're passive, you're just consuming yes. something. Yeah. Whereas the word user, uh, you're using it actively and in the uh, act of using a technology, you might change it or you might tweak it. And, and that is fundamentally different from the way we talk about the consumer society. And... Uh, um, and what is interesting uh, that we discovered that in the past, um, people have organized around a new technology. So, indeed, uh, cyclists were organizing around a bicycle to to uh, make sure that the bicycles could ride because you didn't have the infrastructure in the road, or um, a computer activists who rally around a technology. So apparently every time a new technology comes around, there is a need to make sure uh, that it's being used in a, in a, a particular way. And of course, the, at the moment, with the, the environmental challenge that the world faces, I think the actual use of the word ex rebellion in the social movement of young people's voices in Extinction Rebellion um, mirrors everything you've talked about with voices shaping policy, making governments listen um, in a way that we've not quite seen before. So... I'm not, I'm not around, sure around around the environment. It feels yeah. it feels like it's reaching a public consciousness. That um, what what do you think? Well, we Ruth? can have a debate yeah. whether this is new. I I don't think so. Uh, as Michael said, uh, uh, for example, the, the concern about the environment. We tell the story about the recycling bins from the 1970s, yeah. and we actually say, well, that goes back to the war when people had a much more conscious idea of uh, how precious materials uh, were. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think in general the, the point is that most technologies are being promoted in a certain way. Um, computers were promoted as a business tool. Yeah, it's okay, but actually the revolution is that it can be used in a personal way as we use it today. That is the invention. So that we question also what is an invention? You can say the computer was invented in, well, let's say the 1950s or earlier, but we, we could, you could also say, well, it was invented much later when it was actually used on a broader scale. The bicycle could be said is invented in, you know, you can say, um, you know, 200 years ago. Well, maybe, but if you look at 
how widely used was used as we use it today, then maybe we could say invention is much later. So the point also of the book is that engineers and scientists and designers are, are not the only source of when a technology is being invented. It's also the users who, who give it different meanings. And in this, this sense, we, we really hope to talk with the other volumes, you know, yes. that, that we are counterpoint. Yes. Yeah. So, Mikhail, how did users and consumers get around some of the technical systems that were set up for them? How did they circumvent them? Well, of course, in very many ways and, and every day. But um, that's also why we, in the title, we have this word tinkering, you know, it's... And, the word rebel. <clears throat> Let me take the example of, of um, urbanites, urban people <clears throat> living in basically any part of, of Europe in the mid-19th century. You know, these people have moved into the cities from the countryside where they used to live off the land. And now they come to the city where they have to go to the nearest store to buy food, foodstuffs. And capitalizing on this situation, companies take the opportunity to start producing canned food, for example. Canned food immediately being criticized for being unhealthy, not to, not to talk, be also being expensive. So what housewives, partly also in the working women, do is they start to make their own jams, their own canned beef, the canned fruits. And of course, industry helps them. There, in Germany, for example, this is called Beck system. You can go, you can buy certain kind of glasses where you do your own sterilization at home. And by by such measures, women try to well to give their family healthy foods. They avoided these industrialized foodstuffs. So, I mean, this is more than one hundred years ago. And so already then, female users, female consumers knew how to deal with a system which was new to them, but uh, they did so in a very creative fashion. Yeah, we have maybe another example. Yeah. Um, the sewing machine is considered one of the big inventions, and certainly it was used in, the, in factories to mass produce uh, um, men's garments, but the um, sewing machine was then also used at home for women to circumvent that mass-produced system by making their own clothing. And so uh, that's a highly uh, uh, intricate and difficult uh, thing to do. Uh, I have had discussions about this, you know, how easy is it to make clothes? It's actually very, very difficult. I, I would can, agree. I cannot, I, I cannot do it, uh, for one. Uh, so we see that the sewing machine is used for mass production and is used for, to undermine that mass production by women making their own clothes. And then a third, a perhaps surprising use of that uh, sewing machine is that uh, women of high class who had, of course, their own uh, seamstresses could not make their own clothes, but would have a very elaborate, beautiful sewing machine in the parlor just to show off. So there it was more status. a symbol, a yeah. status, than that the machine would do its work. So um, 
yeah, you see that that these technologies can be used for a variety of of reasons uh, and to and both people rebelling against the rebelling intended against, use, yeah, yeah, the mass production. Mm. So, what what lessons would you like to be taken from your book um, for the future of Europe, and what hopes do you have that there will be? Um, we have lessons of history, but people don't often learn those lessons. Well, I, I, we, we end the book uh, because we, as we were writing our introduction and conclusion, uh, you know, uh, this idea about Europe uh, being the future for integration was already starting to be questioned and people were out on the streets. So we did have a sense... And you always ask us a historian, are we entering a new uh, era? We don't know. What we do know from the past is that there's always struggle and contestation. So even while we hope for a better future for Europe, where we all happily uh, live ever after, uh, I I think things like Brexit or um, what what happens in in different parts of, of Europe or even the immigration uh, a story. We know it is an ongoing struggle, and it can only we can only have a better future if people uh, uh, continue to uh, to work for it. You know, Europe is a work in progress. Always is, always will be. That's the lesson. And on that note, I think we'll end it there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So that concludes this episode. To know more about the Making Europe book series, visit makingeurope.eu. To join the debate, find us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. The Making Europe podcast was initiated by Johan Schott. Financed by the Foundation for the History of Technology, the Center for Global Challenges at Utrecht University, and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. The podcast is realized and produced by Sun City, Geraldine Bloomfield, and Susanne Lommers.